section twenty three of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami lecture eight sport and rural england part two not that two such adventurers as sponge and spraggan are real enemies and they meet on neutral ground in the house of a third type of squire mr puffington the son of a wealthy manufacturer has bought an estate and set up a pack of hounds the delineation of this character is extremely clever and shows how the author realizes the change which is coming over country life scamperdale jollyford and sir harry all belong to the old landed aristocracy puffington is a new man his money is in the land like theirs but he is independent of his estate in his desire to be popular he allows his tenants to rob him and his labourers to poach his game he maintains a pack of foxhounds and entertains magnificently but he is not really liked and is regarded as an interloper thinking sponge is a literary man and that he will trumpet the fame of his pack in the newspapers puffington invites him to stay in his house and entertains him royally jack spraggan is also one of the invited guests and sponge lends him one of his horses they have a famous run with the hounds and when they get home in the interval before dinner spraggan tells sponge that puffington their host expects to have a flaming account of his hunt in the newspapers and that their reception is due to the fact that sponge is believed to be a great writer on sporting subjects as however he does not know how to do it spraggan offers to dictate an account of the run and sponge settles down at the table having used his friend's razor to cut the pen the run is described in true journalistic style and when sponge who is an indifferent penman exclaims hard work authorship jack spraggan says that he could go on forever sponge retorts it's all very well for you to do the talking but it's the writing and the craning and the spelling however the manuscript is sent off to the local paper and falls into the hands of the daughter of the proprietor as she cannot make head or tail to sponge's writing she edits it as best she can calling a ravishing scent an exquisite perfume and making the run not less than ten miles as the cow goes instead of as the crow flies that evening there is a grander banquet than ever and spraggan and sponge get hold of a rich young fellow mr pacey spraggan persuades pacey who fancies himself a very sharp blade indeed that sponge is a greenhorn with the result that at the end of the dinner he buys sponge's horse multum and parvo at a very low figure as however that famous quadruped manages to throw mr pacey and also his guardian major screw sponge gets the horse back with a sum of money as a compensation for the inconvenience to which he has been put and generously gives mr pacey a bit of valuable advice never to try to trade in horses after dinner naturally mr puffington is not pleased by all this and when he reads the account of the run with his hounds he nearly has a fit and he resolves to take to his bed till sponge is well out of his house 
here we take farewell of our hero and i will say a few words on the way in which certes in his sketches of country life indicates his appreciation that a change is coming over the land the scamperdales jollyfords and the older families are disappearing and the new commercial and moneyed class is taking its place puffington and men of his type are beginning to come to the front it is getting more difficult to live on the land as the older gentry had done and estates are becoming rather a tax on a commercial fortune than the support of an aristocratic family certes represents the old landowners as somewhat out at elbows trying in vain to compete with the new men who are buying up their estates in one of his novels we have a great jewish magnate sir moses mainchance who would have been practically impossible twenty years earlier sport changes with society the railway has made country and town one as a few hours bring all england within reach of london hunting is ceasing to be the old friendly and almost family institution where the neighbourhood gathered at the meet and everybody was known and welcomed it was already becoming an affair for the rich from all parts of the world and the scamperdales in vain tried to scare away the wealthy sportsmen of the town by abusive language the time was close at hand when his presence would be welcomed eagerly and rural sport would be at an end we will now turn to another side of country life namely the social as portrayed by antony trollope who might also have been quoted as a writer on sport trollope to my mind has a real genius for interesting his readers in uninteresting people because he describes so faithfully the characters one meets every day gives their conversation exactly as they talk to one another and exhibits them in the same commonplace attitude in which we all are for the greater part of our lives he wrote not by inspiration when he felt in the mood but regularly and systematically turning out his novels when he had leisure from his duties as a government official at so many pages an hour he says that he had little or no intimate knowledge of cathedral society yet to one who has opportunity of observing it somewhat closely his descriptions appear to have the accuracy of a photograph in trollope's novels we have english life especially well drawn and though many scenes are laid in london his characters always gravitate back to the country whence they derive their influence and prestige it is not my intention to elaborate more than one side of this very versatile and copious writer his political novels for example are well worth studying especially phineas finn in the bertrams we have an excellent picture of oxford life in the opening chapter personal experience gave trollope unusual insight into the character of the government officials of his time he was wonderfully quick at seizing on types hitherto unknown in english society who were gradually becoming forces in the world even as a writer on sport he deserves a place for what can be better than his description of the young popular able clergyman in framley parsonage whose very success leads him into some very difficult situations i need not remind you for i find he is widely read in this country of his treatment of social gatherings in great houses like that of the duke of omnion all i intend to do 
is to ask you to examine his clerical types and perhaps to offer some explanations which may be useful the state of things we read of in such books as the warden and barchester towers has almost but not quite disappeared and i confess that although i think i understand it i find a difficulty in making it clear to you the initial problem is to explain why life in a cathedral city is often rural rather than town life in the first place the word city in england used to be applied only to places where there was a cathedral ely though still a town of some eight thousand people is always spoken of as a city and so are Clandoff and st david's which are little more than villages and till very recently liverpool and birmingham were styled towns leicester with some three hundred thousand inhabitants is still i believe technically a town the older cathedrals are in fact generally in small places which were once very important cities but have been outstripped by what then were little better than hamlets but have long since become great centres of population such are canterbury chichester salisbury wells ely and lichfield barchester was emphatically a country town dominated by the landowners in the vicinity and the clergy around it were a rural priesthood the society which was centred in any cathedral was and still is unlike anything else in the world in the middle ages a great cathedral like salisbury or lincoln was designed for a semi-monastic rather than congregational worship it was served by a community of priests called canons because they observed a canon or rule of life joined with these was a veritable army of inferior priests singers and ministers all under the control of the dean who presided over the cathedral as the bishop over the diocese this vast and splendid establishment was at the reformation under queen elizabeth reduced to a limited number of canons or prebendaries minor canons singing men and boys vergers and beadsmen as however under the new regime the services were little more than daily morning and evening prayer the reduced staff had little or nothing to do accordingly the canons took turns to reside in the cathedral close and usually held benefices in other places they married like other clergy but were still nominally monastic persons attached to the cathedral as time went on the estates of the chapters or colleges of the deans and canons became very valuable and their positions were much coveted as the prizes of the church a cathedral chapter therefore was as a rule an aristocratic body consisting of the dean nominated by the crown and of the canons as a rule by the bishop of course the bishops in days when public opinion was not powerful put their relatives into the canonries and there were many ties between the various members of the cathedral bodies who kept the rest of the world and especially the inferior clergy at a respectful distance with this attempt to explain the situation let me try to set forth some of the principal characters in the warden and barchester towers remembering that men are living under an order of things which was beginning to pass away first we have two charming characters in the bishop and the warden bishop grantly is an aged man a gentleman in the truest sense of the word but a prelate 
who had never perhaps in his life been particularly energetic and was passing his later days in dignified ease he is a little lonely as very old men often are and he does not comprehend the new age in which men have to fight to maintain their position and privileges so he fails to understand his energetic son who has married the warden's daughter his one friend is the warden a man younger than himself though elderly the warden holds one of those anomalous positions not uncommon in the church at that time he is head of a hospital for old men in receipt of a very comfortable income of eight hundred pounds four thousand dollars and he is also the precentor that is leader of the music in the cathedral he is a modest retiring man an exquisite musician and a kindly friend to the old men under his charge very different is the bishop's son archdeacon grantly the archdeacon is a strong man determined to stand up for his rights and what he believes to be the rights of his church he is thoroughly efficient a vigorous administrator a capable ruler of the rich parish over which he presides he cannot understand his father's allowing things to drift nor the placid piety of his father-in-law the warden the two old men are terribly worried and when they dine together they plot feebly how to resist the archdeacon but give way whenever he appears on the scene but at last the crisis comes the newspapers discover that the warden is overpaid for his nominal work at the hospital the old men who are well lodged fed and cared for are told that they ought to share in his stipend a busy lawyer in the cathedral city takes up the case and the great london paper the thunderer has leading articles denouncing the abuses of the church in general and the warden's position in particular finally a novel appears with a thinly veiled attack on the administration of the barchester hospital for old men then the warden shows himself to have all the firmness of a man gentle by nature but of the highest principles he retires to a life of poverty rather than bear the reproach of being in a false position the archdeacon storms accuses his father-in-law of culpable weakness in deserting his post and the bishop for allowing him to do so and then the old bishop rallies to his friend's support terribly afraid of his masterful son he will not allow the warden to be bullied out of doing what he thinks right so the warden leaves his comfortable house and takes apartments in the city the bishop gives him a tiny parish and mr harding for that is the warden's name lives in honourable poverty directing the cathedral music as precentor and ministering in his little church in the old city and he and his old friend the bishop have peace in their latter days thus we pass from the warden to barchester towers and find old dr grantly dying peacefully and his son the archdeacon hoping to succeed his father another man is however given the bishopric and trollope introduces his greatest characters bishop and mrs proudie the new bishop is a fairly easy-going man but his wife is determined to bring things in barchester into order her regime has for its watchword efficiency 
in it there is no room for kindly bishops and retiring scholars like mr harding what is required is awakening preachers zealous reformers capable administrators the old sleepy cathedral must become a centre of vigorous life and action in which even clergy like archdeacon grantly with their aristocratic notions could have no place mrs proudie is herself a lady of high birth but vulgar people have a good deal of influence over her because they flatter her vanity accordingly she takes up with a clergyman named slope who lets her in for a good deal of trouble by his officiousness and want of judgment and good feeling but who am i that in a brief lecture i should attempt to describe mrs proudie let us turn to a very typical character in old cathedral life dr stanhope one of the canons of barchester would be impossible now but is easily conceived in the fifties i should say that he was the sort of man who had become a clergyman because his family was able to advance him and had never had any real vocation for his calling his wife and children were a great expense to him and he lived long abroad in order to retrench getting his work done for him in england his son was a thorough bohemian and his daughter had married an italian nobleman who had left her bishop proudie had compelled dr stanhope to return to his duties at barchester and the family were thoroughly out of place in a cathedral city with their foreign ideals and lax views of propriety you have to picture the decorous formality of barchester society to realize the humor of trollope's description of bertie stanhope and his sister the signora throughout trollope's novels there is the background of rural life and especially that of the clergy at times it is amusing but often it is tragic and believe me in those parsonage houses in the picturesque villages of england some veritable tragedies have been enacted how many a clergyman and his wife have succumbed before the work of bringing up an enormous family on insufficient means how many a man of high culture has found in the parish he entered with such high hopes the end of his career how many have dreariness and isolation led to find relief in habits which have proved their ruin the story of the rural clergy of england is the theme of many a novelist from fielding onwards and there is generally a tone of sadness about it but may i commend especially the writings of charlotte young for perhaps the best description of the subject side by side with the comfortable dignitaries who lived around the cathedrals the grantleys the proudies the stanhopes were the quiverfuls with the crushing load of children innumerable and mr crawley a famous scholar in his day who had sunk amid the poverty of a wretched parish and the weight of utterly uncongenial surroundings one of the greatest changes in england that people of my age have seen is the complete shifting of influence from the country to the town and this is peculiarly true of the clergy who often belonged to the country families and shared in the ideas tasks and pursuits of their brothers now that our young clergy are recruited from a totally different class they are perhaps more devoted to their profession but are unfortunately bred in towns rather than the country and often fail to understand the people in the way their predecessors had done 
even in my younger days the possession of land meant power and social prestige and people really lived on it but the change was coming rapidly and the writers i have quoted show us the scene just before it was about to shift among all classes there has been a rush from the country to the towns and there has been a growing tendency to regard rural england rather as a playground than as the source of the nation's best inhabitants this tendency has unfortunately in my judgment at least been fostered by a legislation which has refused to give agriculture the encouragement it requires with the result that our villages in england almost all tell the same tale of falling population perhaps one of the most urgent problems before our english statesmen is how to attract people back to the beautiful country which under modern economic conditions has been so much deserted i have now brought my lectures to an end i have tried to place before you as vivid a picture as i could of english life in a bygone age and if i have not made it adequate to the expectation of my auditors i have at least a hope that i have aroused sufficient interest to make some here desire to know more of the subject for the study of social life is in truth a most important branch of history it is almost impossible to form a just conception of the men of any age from documents unless one can gain an idea what manner of men they really are unless we have this knowledge no amount of research no ingenuity or discrimination will assist us to arrive at an apprehension of the truth for it is not possible to understand men's actions unless we have that sympathy which makes us realize that under different conditions they were human beings not after all unlike what we ourselves should have been in their circumstances and it is in the novel the private letter the caricature the half-forgotten jest or good story that we are helped to depict the men and women of the past a pleasing task awaits me namely to thank you for the welcome you have given me as a stranger when i first appeared before you for the patience you have shown in listening to what i had to say for the evident sympathy and good feeling you have shown throughout these lectures let me say that i felt deeply the honour conferred on me by the offer of a lowell lectureship that i enjoyed in these days of great sorrow and anxiety shared by all my countrymen the distraction which i found in preparing for my responsible task and that though i confess i first entered this room with no little trepidation and wondered how i could possibly interest complete strangers i now feel that i am speaking to friends who have by their kindness to an englishman with whose very name they must have been unfamiliar demonstrated the reality of the ties which bind the two englands the old and the new each to the other end of section twenty three recording by pamela nagami m d in november of the year of the plague twenty twenty end of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson